Tonight we're in Revelation Revealed, Part 7, Chapter 3, Part 1. We finally made it to the third chapter, but we're not out of the seven churches yet. So it's Revelation Revealed, Part 7, Chapter 3, Part 1. I want to say a prayer, then we'll review, introduce, and jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your goodness. And Lord, for this uh, amazing book, the book of Revelation, I pray, God, that you would just open our hearts, open our eyes, help us to see the truths that are in here, how they apply to us, challenge us with them. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Now, in part six, uh, we looked at Thyatira. We looked at their struggle with the Nicolaitans, and, and we looked at uh, uh, the, the Jezebel was there, the struggle that, that Jezebel brought uh, onto the scene. We had seen the Balaamites as well. They all kind of had a similar spirit. And I think the thing that stood out to me last time, which it's been a minute, but the thing that stood out to me last time was the fact that God gave this prophetess Jezebel, who was so evil and destructive, space to repent. That is amazing. This terrible, terrible influence. The Lord gave her space to repent. And I've made the point, you think you've done bad things and God won't let you have a time to repent. I'm just telling you, we serve a merciful God. So now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So let's begin to unpack this. Sardis was one of the oldest cities on the face of the earth. It had a stately past, and at the time of this writing, it was well past its prime. It was situated at the junction of several important roads and trade routes, which offered an ample opportunity for generating wealth. I think I've got a picture of a map I'd like to throw up there, Jason. And uh, we've talked about these churches. So here you've got Sardis. We started at Ephesus, went to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now we're at Sardis. So you can see this is about 35 miles south of Thyatira. And then you see Paul's writing from Patmos over here. And, and history says he was the bishop of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, which you see right there uh, to the right of Patmos. And so Sardis also had a, a bevy, not only, not only did it have a good trade routes and roads going through it, but it had a bevy of valuable minerals and semi-precious stones in the mountains and rivers around it, including gold, opal, banded agate, blue chalcedony, which I believe I've got a picture of that because I was trying to figure out what that was, but you've seen this stuff before. It's uh, just a beautiful stone and semi-precious, but they had fashioned jewelry out of this stuff, and uh, it was famous throughout the world. They had monetized everything they could. They had become very wealthy. The citizens of Sardis were rich. Interestingly, the first coinage ever minted in Asia Minor 
history says, was minted in Sardis. William Barclay says it was the place where modern money was born. However, times had shifted, things had changed, and Sardis had been on the decline for quite a while. So by the time of this writing, Sardis was ruled by old money. Everybody say old money. You can just smell old money, can't you? Big stately mansions, estates, trust funds, um, endowments, country clubs, old money. And that's kind of where Sardis was at this time. Now, like most of Asia Minor, Sardis had its fair share of false religion. Guzik says there was a large stately temple to the mother goddess Sibel. Its main columns were 60 feet high. Think of that, 60 feet high and 6 feet in diameter. Sibel was honored and worshipped with all kinds of lewd acts. And not only were they known for their money, false religion, and the immorality that went along with it, they were known for their overconfidence, especially when it came to the defense of their city. It made them, because of the situation and, well, just the way they were situated, it made them lazy and soft. Listen to this. Sardis was situated atop a natural plateau with 1,000 foot, some that I looked at said up to 1,500 foot sheer cliffs on pretty much three sides and a huge wall on one side that was not, you know, didn't have cliffs, the, the access point. There was a huge wall. And because of this, they had a certain sense of invincibility. John Walford of Dallas Theological Seminary points out this softness, this lack of discipline and dedication, this overconfidence was the doom of Sardis on a few different occasions. The Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall of Sardis in the days of Cyrus. King Cyrus came to Sardis and found the position of the city ideally suited for defense. There seemed to be no way to scale the steep cliff walls surrounding the city. He offered a rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get up to the city. One soldier studied the problem carefully, and as he looked, he saw a soldier defending Sardis drop his helmet down the cliff walls. He watched as the soldier climbed down a hidden trail to recover his helmet. He marked the location of the trail and led a detachment of troops up it that night while the city confidently slept. They easily climbed the cliffs, came to the actual city walls, found them unguarded. The soldiers of Sardis were so confident in the natural defenses of their city, they felt no need to keep a diligent watch, so the city was easily conquered. Curiously, the same thing happened almost 200 years later when Antiochus attacked, or Antiochus attacked and conquered the overconfident city that didn't set a watch. And so there was a church at Sardis. And so Jesus went to work addressing his church. Incidentally, Jesus has nothing to say good about this church. I don't want to be that church. In the seven churches of Asia Minor, Sardis and Laodicea are the only two of the seven with this distinction. Jesus begins by identifying himself, identifying himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. Now, we saw this in chapter 1, the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. This is a reference to the sevenfold spirit of God, I believe, found in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's Jesus. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord. That's the sevenfold spirit of God, the aspects of the spirit of God. It refers to his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And he has the seven stars, the churches themselves, in his hand. In other words, Jesus was in control. And so let me do a little referencing here to something we've, we've covered just to bring us back up to speed. Ephesus was doctrinally pure but had lost its first love. You remember that. They serve as a warning to us not to lose our first love. Remember that, that love that got us into Christ in the first place. And they paint a picture, I believe prophetically, of the apostolic age, the apostolic church from 33 to 100 A.D. Smyrna was persecuted. Nothing bad was said of them. They showed us how to endure under intense pressure. They painted a prophetic picture of the persecuted church under the ten worst Roman emperors. Remember that ten days statement from 100 to 312 A.D. Pergamum had problems. The Balaamites, Nicolaitans, they tolerated doctrinal deviance. They served as a warning to us, do not sell out doctrine for money or power. They paint a, a prophetic picture of church uniting with the state. It began with Constantine. The preachers were on the payroll of the state, and, and they did the state's bidding. Thyatira was even worse. They had the prophetess named Jezebel. They embraced and celebrated doctrinal deviance and sexual immorality. They codified false doctrine and tortured and murdered those who remained true to the Lord. They paint a prophetic picture of the church in the Middle Ages. And now the progression continues. This spoke to them. This speaks to us. And it paints a prophetic picture, I believe, of the church during the Reformation period. So let's dive in. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They had works. This was a busy church. Everybody say busy. They were doing things. They had projects, programs. They had conferences and committees, forums, festivities. They had opportunities to serve, places to go, people to see, things to do. Never a dull moment over in Sardis. They were always in motion. They called themselves Christians. They spoke Christianese. They had the lingo down pat, the nomenclature, the accoutrements. They had a name, a reputation. They were known amongst their peers and their community for being alive. In other words, when the churches of Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, and Ephesus talked about the church of Sardis, they would say, wow. They got it going on over there in Sardis. We love that church. They're on fire. Let's go to their conferences. Let's go to their meetings. Of course, they were on TV. They were on the Internet. They live streamed. They hosted conferences. They coached other churches. They were alive, active, on the move. But Jesus said it like this. You have a reputation for being alive, but 
you are dead. Think about that. When everybody else thought they were alive, Jesus said, you are dead. Everybody misjudged them. They got it going on. Jesus said, no, they don't. Everybody else said, man, they're alive. They're full of power, vitality. Jesus said, no, they're not. They're dead. There was this flurry of activity in the church of Sardis. But in the words of Shakespeare, it was much ado about nothing. None of it mattered. I want to tell you something. No matter what the church world thinks about us, no matter what our community says about us, folks, the only thing that matters is what does Jesus say about us? This is His church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. My, this is His church. The minute we start thinking it's my church, we've started the death process. Our church belongs to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. He has this problem. He thinks he's God. He's the Lord of the church. I don't want to hear well done from those down here on earth. I want to hear well done from the one who's up in heaven because that's where it matters. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear him who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who is able to kill the body and the soul. In other words, lift your eyes higher than what your peers think, what the church world thinks. Ask yourself, what does Jesus think? I'm reminded of this story I still can't fully wrap my mind around in Matthew 7. And you know, we, we like to throw everybody else into this story, and rarely do we insert ourselves into this story. It's one of those stories, it's, it's just bizarre, it's, it's brutal, it's difficult, it's difficult. If you start diving into it, it's, it's difficult. But I'm, tell, I'm telling you, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to salvation, to righteousness. It's a narrow path, and some things are difficult. Listen to this, listen to this. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now, see, we, we are okay with verse 21 because we're like, see, they're just professors. They're not possessors. Lord, Lord. But man, 22 gets stout. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Now, if they're in the presence of God and they really didn't do this, why would they bring this up as a defense? Maybe they're totally deceived or maybe they actually did it. Like I said, it gets difficult. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is omniscient. He knows all. 
He knew all the works these people did, but he never knew them. That's what he says, I never knew you. We're so interested in knowing Christ, but the question is, does he know us? He says he never knew them. That is to say, in an intimate, covenantal kind of knowing, in a self-sacrificing type of relationship, abandoning the will of yourself, indulging the will of your covenant partner. Jesus only knows those, he said it, who do the will of the Father like he did. That's the common ground, the holy ground, actually, where covenant trumps self. Jesus knew the deeds of the church at Sardis. They were busy, but it wasn't the Father's business. So because of this, they were dead to Jesus. You're dead. I'm going to tell you, I don't want to be just busy. I want to be busy about the Father's business. Remember when Jesus said that? Didn't you know I had to be about my Father's business? Remember when he said in John 4, he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. I don't want to just do stuff, even good stuff. In the social realm, you know, we can get so busy. As a church, adopt streets, dig water wells, not against any of that. In the religious, spiritual realm, we can prophesy, cast out demons, do things full of wonder, wonderful things in his name. But I'm just going to tell you something. We need to take a soul search and ask ourselves, am I pleasing the Father? I want him to know me. I want him to live through me. And for that to happen, through any of us, it takes dying to self. Well, that's exciting, right? Stop running the aisles. Please be seated. Please be seated. Matthew 16, 24, 25, that's what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but he, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if the church at Sardis was alive to everyone else and dead to Jesus, then you could say they had not come after Jesus, followed after him. They had not taken up their cross. They had not laid their lives down for his sake. But that's how you really live. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Somehow the church at Sardis had replaced dying to self and living for God with living for self and just doing religious stuff. Vance Havner, I love Vance Havner. He famously said of ministries, even the greatest of ministries, they start with a man, they turn into a movement, they morph into a machine, and then they become a monument. Scholars say that the church at Sardis was started by the Apostle John. There are some others who say Paul started the church at Sardis. Either way, it was some 50 or 60 years earlier, and at the time of this confrontation that Jesus is having with them, Sardis was a monument. There was no life. Notice, 
and this is interesting to me, there's no false doctrine mentioned. There's, there's no, there are no false teachers, no devils. And the reason why is because the devil had already won. Sardis had quit fighting, and they had died. A dead soldier is a soldier who lost that particular fight. Sardis had lost. William Barclay says the church at Sardis was at peace, but it was the peace of the dead. John Caird says Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Jesus knew they were busy, animated. They had a reputation for being full of life, but he said they're dead. And he called them out on it. He continues, look at verses 2 and 3. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Interestingly, Jesus uses that well-known history of military blunders in their past to provoke them. It's cool. He's saying, wake up, Sardis, for crying out loud. Remember your past. Be watchful. Deep inside, this is interesting, y'all, deep inside this dead church remained the seed of the word. And he was saying, all your busyness, your activity cannot cover for the selfish arrogance and overconfidence that you have. This is cool. He's showing us how do you deal with someone who's dead when it comes to the things of God. They backslid. They seem to have no life. And he's saying, and watch this, he says, remember how you first believed, received, heard the word, Hold fast to that experience and repent. And that's interesting. Because really, there's nothing good said about Sardis. And it's like they're dead. You know, you bury the dead, right? You, you just you move on. But Jesus is not moving on. He's saying, listen, remember. Come on now. Remember when you first believed. It's kind of like Ephesus. Remember when you first believed believed, and and try to go back there. Remember how you were when you received the excitement, when you heard the word, hold fast to that, turn back to that. Memories of when you first believed are a powerful tool to help you get back to where you should be. Brother Tenney preached a message one time called the, The Advantage of the Prodigal. And it simply was this. The prodigal knew the way back to the father's house. He knew the goodness of the father. He knew the father would extend mercy. Now, he underestimated the mercy, but he knew I can, I, when, when it's all lost, I can go back to my father's house. The prodigal had that kind of advantage. He had a memory of the father's house and the father's goodness. Paul told the church at Thessalonica, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Sometimes, y'all, the good old days really are the good old days. Sometimes they're just the good old days, D-A-Z-E. You're just kind of in a daze and in a haze, and, and it really wasn't as good as you remember. But when you go back to when you first believed, that was cool, right? When you first, when you first heard that word, you first started making those advances towards the cross, towards Jesus. You first started buying in. You first realized he will forgive me of my sins. When you came out of that water in Jesus' name and you're like, my sins are forever gone. Thank you, Jesus. When you first broke through in the Holy Ghost, maybe it took you a little while, but you first broke through. I, I remember some of y'all, when you first broke through to the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, and you were like, wow, that was easier than I thought it would be. This is incredible, filled with the, the Holy Ghost. When you first believed, when you first came in, sometimes those good old days really were good old days. Remember when you weren't jaded by church people and church experiences and, and, and the tricks of the devil. Remember when you heard clearly and saw clearly when the word was fresh. Remember how you received freely with a grateful heart overwhelmed by his mercy. Hold fast to that is what Jesus is saying. Return to that. Sardis, memories, memories. Memories were instrumental in my coming back to the Lord. I was so jaded, but I just had memories of not being jaded. I had memories of being a kid going to youth camps and praying at the altar and being in the presence of God. And those memories are, are, are what really, that, that led me home. I was so far out, and, and I was the prodigal with an advantage. I remember the peace I had in my father's house that I didn't have anymore. And, and I questioned my father, my heavenly father. I didn't even know if he was real. And, but I had memories of experiences and memories of believing and memories of the peace and it was, it was those memories that drew me back, that, that lit the trail. As I said, Father, I don't know if you're real, but I do remember the peace I had. And it started a journey for me that ended up getting me back into that relationship with my Heavenly Father. I was at youth camp or camp meeting, I think, last year. I've told you all this, I, I think. But I, I was, I, I was uh, Brother Marcelli was sitting there, and he said, Donovan, come here, I have a word for you. Go over there, and Brother Marcelli said, "Thus saith the Lord." You know, <laughs> this big old voice of his, big old hands. He said, "The Lord has shown me that you are going to uh, influence some ministries in your area that are not of your persuasion. God's going to open doors, and God's you're going to begin to talk, and you're going to God's set you up for this for such a time as this." Man, it's really cool. I said, "Amen." I received that. I came home, and with just a matter of days, I got a phone call from a pastor in the area, totally different persuasion, different background, just a cessationist, uh, didn't believe in speaking in tongues, didn't believe, in, didn't believe anything like I believe. And we had sparred throughout the years. We had sparred back and forth. And, and out of nowhere, he calls me, and he says, uh, hey, let's get together for coffee. I said, cool, man, let's get together. 
And I didn't even think about Brother Marcelli's prophecy. And so I, uh, I met him for coffee, and, and as we were talking, I remembered what Brother Marcelli said to me. I'm like, wow, just, just a matter of days, and here we are. So we started talking, and he said, I want to tell you a story, Donovan. He said, I am from another city, and he named it. And I, I said, yeah, I knew that, and we, we joked about it in the north, and I used to live in Baltimore, and anyhow, we, we had some, we talked about living up there. He said, when I was up there, he said, my sister and I, we, he said, we were struggling. He said, we were smoking dope, had all kind of issues, and he said, we're teenagers. And he said, my sister went to a church, it was a crazy, wild, weird church. He said, man, that they were crazy, work, running, jumping, dancing, loud music, crazy. Screaming and hollering. I said, really? He said, yeah, I thought you'd find this interesting. He said, when, when um, she, she got baptized and she, she kind of got the Holy Ghost, you know, speaking in tongues. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, she was baptized in Jesus' name. I said, come on now. He said, yeah. He said, I went and the same thing happened to me. We quit doing drugs. We Went to church there for a while. And I said, but you're not involved in any of that. He's like, oh, no, I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. I just want you to know where I came from because I thought you'd find that interesting. I said, you have no idea how interesting I find it. I said, and this guy's educated, smart cookie, y'all, smart, smart cookie. I, I love him to death. He's a friend of mine. But but we knew, we've known each other for years, and I said, I said, let me, let me just tell you the truth of why you and I are having coffee today. I said, here's the truth. And, and it, it, it was memories. I started, I, I started realizing he's got memories of experiences he had. He's got an advantage over many other people in this world. Now, he can deny it all he wants, but the Lord has sent me to provoke his memory. And I said, you know what I've come to realize? You're just a backslidden Pentecostal. And he's like, oh, he started laughing. He's like, that is not true. No, no, no. I said, oh, no. And God has sent me into your world to shake it up a little bit and to help remind you of who you really are. Oh, he laughed and just thought that was outrageous. And I said, no, no, no. And I'm still praying for him. We still talk occasionally. But I'm telling you, God put me in his life because I know if anybody knows, I know the power of a memory. And I'm going to tell you something. He doesn't believe God still delivers that way, that him and his sister were delivered up there all those years ago. But I'm telling you, it's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's just dead, but there's a seed of the word on the inside of him. Who are you praying for that seems like there's all hope, it's all gone, there's no hope? I'm telling you, if that word is in there, his word doesn't return void. It's powerful. Stir it up. Provoke it. Remind them of what they once walked in. Amen? Remind them of what they first walked in. I love that story. But it was fun. I got to tell you, it was fun. It's like, you ain't all uppity. He's like real intellectual. I'm like, whatever. You're just a backslidden Pentecost. You covered up all you want. I mean, once you've been marked by this, you can't go nowhere else. You really can't. You've tried, but you can't. Winston Churchill said to Britain in the early days of World War II, I must drop one word of caution. For next to cowardice and treachery over confidence 
leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. Jesus warns, if you don't wake up, you overconfident church, I'll sneak in like Cyrus or Antiochus did. I'll come like a thief in the night, either in judgment now or when that trumpet sounds. I'm going to catch you unawares. Look at verses 4 through 6. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guzik says in Pergamos and in Thyatira, there were a few bad among the good. In Sardis, there were a few good among the bad. Now, defiled their garments. It speaks of purity. There were a few who were not participating in the scam that was going on in Sardis. It was a remnant. It was always a remnant. A few who had remained pure. Notice what Jesus says of these pure ones here in Revelation 3. They shall walk. They shall walk with me. And I'll wind down here. They shall walk with me. That's amazing. In a church that is dead, Jesus said, I'll come down and walk with them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Galatians 5.24, here's a walker. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Hebrews 11.5 adds details. Verse 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For because he was taken, he had this testimony. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God. So he walked. He pleased God. And it says then in verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So Enoch walked with God pleased God by walking in the word, walking in faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, right, and not by sight. The remnant in Sardis walked with Jesus, the word made flesh, by walking in the word and walking in faith. They were exercising fidelity when it came to the word of the covenant. That's how he knew them, remember? They had the word in common, the word of the covenant, pleasing the Father, submitting to the will of the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done kind of submission. That's purity in the eyes of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And these, these white robes that are mentioned, they're also a sign of triumph in Roman culture. Purity. Righteousness. And being triumphant. Again, notice, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. For he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. William Barclay, I'm almost done. Y'all cool? Is this, is this awesome or what? 
William Barclay points out in ancient times, cities were cities kept a register of their citizens. And when a man died, his name was removed from the register. The risen Christ is saying that if we wish to remain on the roll of the citizens of God, we must keep our faith flamingly alive. Stand with me right now. I'm going to close with this. We don't talk about the book of life much anymore in modern church. But there is a book of life. And it will be opened and referred to on the day of judgment. This means that the book of life is real. It will be read. Revelation 20 and 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The book of life will determine if we go to heaven or hell. This means that the book of life, obviously now, is vitally important. Revelation 20, 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Knowing our names are written in the book of life should bring us great joy. Luke 10.10, Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice. Remember they said we did many mighty works and cast out demons, and Jesus said, I never knew you. Nevertheless, he says here in Luke 10.10, Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. There is a book of life. There are five different references to people being blotted out of the book of life. That means that this idea of being blotted out of the book of life should be taken very seriously. Amen. It's one thing to be born of Adam. In the genealogies, two books are mentioned. The book of the generation of Adam, Genesis 5.1. There's another one, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Being born of Adam doesn't get your name in the book. Being born of Jesus Christ gets your name in the book. But then you have to walk faithfully. And sometimes when we stray, it's good to remember. Hmm. I remember. Satan can remember the heights from which he fell, but he can't repent and go back. We can remember from the heights that we fall, but we can repent and go back. Because we have a Savior. We have the blood of the Lamb who owns the book. Now, all this activity that we see here, I think, in the Sardis story is... Speaking of the church of the Reformation, it obviously spoke to them. It speaks to us, but it prophetically was looking at the church of the Reformation. Which is interesting to me because there was so much activity. We just celebrated the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his thesis to the church in Wittenberg, the Diet of Worms. So much activity, so much stuff went on, man, so many novels, books, historical records. 
the reformers were prolific writers. Martin Luther wrote 24-7. John Calvin wrote 24-7. Volumes, volumes written, tons. I, I listen to books, audio books all the time, and I've got tons of them, just tons of them. Lots of prolific writing, busyness, activity. It's all kind of stuff that went on. But really, it, this is offensive to some, but I'm just saying, not a lot changed. Not a lot of reformation really took place. Not a lot changed. The council still dominated what people believed. Not much changed. I know a lot changed, but not much changed at the core of it all. Sardis, man, you've got a reputation for like knocking it out of the park. Jesus said, you're dead as a doorknob. Go back to the beginning. I would say go back to the book of Acts. Go back to that first church. Go back and look at that church at Ephesus. Look at what they did, you know, in the book of Revelation, that Ephesus church represents. Go back and remember. Remember when you first believed, embrace that. Repent. Go back to it. Go back to it. That's where the life is found. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for these stories. Lord, there's just amazing stuff tucked away in these stories. As we move on to Philadelphia and Laodicea, we don't want to be too quick to move on past Sardis. God, when we are just busy, busy, we're lacking in that relationship, our prayer, fellowship, walking in community with our brothers and sisters, breaking bread together, remembering what the Lord has done, being fresh in our faith. I ask you, Lord, help us to go back, remember, and go back, Father, and let us experience once again. Let us be born again again. I know that's theologically unsound, but that idea, go back to that first love and that first experience bring a fresh life. You are able to raise the dead. We know that from the gospel. And you can raise those of us who've lost a life. You can raise us back up again. My son who was dead is now alive. That's what the father said when the prodigal came home. Father, let us not give up on those who have lost so much.